0: Listener supported.
1: WNYC Studios. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival and our uh, last full day of screenings here at the festival. My name is Kara Cusimano. I am the programmer at Tribeca and very pleased to welcome you to this world premiere screening of Compared to What? The Improbable Journey of Barney
2: Frank. This is a very special screening. It's also at Tribeca Talks after the
1: movie, so please do stick around after the film for a conversation between the subject of the film, Barney Frank, and moderator Alec Baldwin, so that should be really great. Uh, And without further ado, I would love to introduce the directors of the film, Michael Chandler and Sheila Canavan. Hello, everyone. We're not going to talk for a long time because we want you to see the film, but I wanted to tell you that this is a very special screening because Congressman Frank and his husband Jim Reddy have not seen the film. They're going to see it with all of us.
2: And we're thrilled to be here today. We had always hoped when we started making the film that we would premiere here, and so we want to thank the folks at Tribeca for making that possible. And we just want to take a brief minute to thank the people without whose help none of us would be uh, sitting here. So first to uh, Barney Frank and Jim Reddy uh, and their friends and families. When we first uh, approached the congressman uh, and he said, what are your parameters for filming? We said, we want to follow you uh, everywhere but the bathroom. And... (laughs) He kept his word. He gave us that kind of access and this was a very big year for both him and Jim. It was a long slog. We intruded in their lives and we thank them for allowing us to do that. Um, Also, there are people who participated in the film. These are people who have very busy schedules uh, and they uh, accommodated us and we're grateful to that. Some of them are here today. Uh, Congressman Spencer Backus, Andy Tobias, Hastings Wyman, and Neil Borofsky. And uh, to the people who supported us Uh, as you know uh independent filmmaking in this day and age relies on modern medicis and uh, we were very lucky to have uh, some of our own uh and some of them are also here today and i'd like to acknowledge them uh stan and mary friedman from our uh, hometown of berkeley Uh, our associate producers david hubner and john barabino our co-executive producers Michael and Donna Weinholtz. Uh, Donna got us on that first plane to DC uh, right at the very beginning. Uh, it was a very important first step to take, and we thank her very much. Uh, and to Andy Tobias, uh, our uh, ambassador without portfolio, uh, and our Knight in Shining Armor, who has helped us a great deal along the way. And our executive producers, Alec Baldwin, who believes in the value of public service. And believes that that message of its value should reach the widest audience possible. We thank him, and last uh, to Jamie Wolfe, our most steadfast supporter, our biggest cheerleader, and best critic, who realized early on, even more than we did, what we had right from the start. And to Jeremy Dreyfus, uh, who was there for every step of the way on our improbable journey. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, enjoy the show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alec Baldwin, Bonnie Frank, and Jim Reddy as soon as we get a mic on him. Right over here. That was really a good movie. Well, my first question, I think, is an obvious one, which is uh, I have two friends that I'm going to be officiating at their marriage at my house in September. And I want to know, Jim, can you get me a deal on a tent? I want to get a tent uh, for the wedding ceremony that I'm officiating. We can talk about that afterward, an awning, a tent, whatever maybe you can come up with. Um, for me, the challenge is that your, the film about your life, and you know, this film covers the personal and the professional so evenly, and the two of them obviously intertwined, and it would take more than the time we have to, to talk about either one of them at, at length, and I want to try to tilt toward one more than the other, which is actually the personal. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, when you first came to Congress, you went from the state legislature to the Congress and took... Uh, uh, Dryden's seat. Uh, that was what year, 82? 80. And, 80. and uh, what was the culture like? I mean, you talk in detail, the film covers in detail your kind of monastic life, and you had a very private life. What was the culture like in Washington
1: back then for gay men? Yeah, I think, and you're absolutely right in the description, because I, I succeeded the only member of Congress which meant the monastic life was kind of had continuity since he was a Jesuit <laughs> priest, who I uh, succeeded. But, um, uh, and actually, I will tell you, Father Dryden uh, said, who was a great man and passed away a few years ago, that he had never been allowed near the Pope subsequent to that. But that if he had been, he would have asked him one question that business with you making me step down, did that work out the way you would expect it to, since I was the replacement? <laughs> um, it was still a pretty negative place. Um, People were, well, accepting that gay and lesbian people should not be legally mistreated was uh, a controversial issue because now that was in advance. Uh, Before Stonewall, it wasn't a controversial issue. No one was for any protection for gay and lesbian people. John Kennedy had an anti-gay administration. So what happens by the late 70s, by 1980 it's now a kind of a respectable minority opinion that gay and lesbian people shouldn't be mistreated. But but that, it was a controversial issue. We had a vote in 1981 in the House. The District of Columbia voted to repeal its sodomy law, criminalizing, mutually consenting adult sex between people of the same sex. And at that point, Congress had the right, either House of Congress had the right to overturn a law of the District of Columbia and the vote was something like 320 to 100 to cancel it. So that's the status. You had 100 members of Congress, almost uh, all Democrats, ready to say it shouldn't be a crime. So it was, it was as they said, progress compared to the absolute unanimity of, of hostility, but it was still a minority opinion. But, but even beyond public policy and things, was there a private you know,
0: nightlife, club life? Oh, yeah, no, it was... Right, I mean, and it was something you felt you didn't feel safe
1: participating no in? Gay. I mean, gay life, really, after Stonewall, there had been these underground clubs, and, in fact, the, the clubs were being persecuted. That's what Stonewall was about. It was a rebellion, literally, against cops coming in and pushing people around because they were in a gay club. And so by the late 70s, yes, there was a thriving gay and lesbian nightlife, and part of my angst was that I was helping fight for the right for that to exist, to fight against any kind of police harassment, and I would go to the ceremonies when we would celebrate progress, and then the party would start, and I'd go home alone. And uh, so there was a a considerable nightlife. And when I got to Washington in 1981, there was a thriving gay nightlife with uh, clubs and places, and uh, Washington was interesting because it was not unusual in Washington for a man to be single away from the family because a lot of the people in Washington were people who were there part-time. Their families were back home. So Washington was actually a pretty comfortable place uh, for gay men, and there was this thriving culture, but it was all very much below the surface. Um, would you say the film
0: touches on the idea of the, the scandal with the driver and the prostitution ring, and the, it's made mention that uh, leadership roles uh, you know, for the party... Uh, might have been denied to you, even though you went on to chair other committees. Do you think it was the scandal, that particular scandal itself, or do you think the same thing would have been in store
1: for you just because you came out as gay? No, I think it was, it was being gay. I, I think the... Uh, the uh, here was the problem. There are... By the time I uh, would have been in a position for leadership, the uh, overwhelming majority of Democrats who would have been voting for me were not themselves prejudiced, but enough of them represented districts where there was a prejudice, so they couldn 't be seen as, as voting for a gay man. Um, I mean that would be there would be Democrats from parts of the south, parts of uh, uh, the West who had themselves no prejudice, but if it could be an issue if they were seen as voting for a gay man. On the other hand, the way we do things in the, in the u s House of Representatives to become chairman of a committee, you were nominated by the leadership based on seniority, usually. But that has to be voted on by all the members in a secret ballot. And so in 2007, when I was named to be the chairman of the Financial Services Committee, uh, that had to be voted on by a secret ballot of the members, and uh, I, I won unanimously. So that was that – was, uh, but, but it was mainly the prejudice. Were you political before you were introduced to were- no.
0: <laughs> – I was so afraid you hey, were going to say that. And I
2: wanted well, but
0: now, when your relationship is like that scene in Diner – were they, remember the scene in Diner where they grill uh, her? To, they give her the test, the quiz, to see if she can get married. Uh, Ellen Barkin, they give her the sports quiz. Uh, and if she doesn't pass the test, he's not going to... Was there like a political hurdle he had to cross, a political efficacy? Or did you enjoy the fact that your life partner wasn't as immersed in all this as you were, which is, of course, opposites attract.
1: No, that, look, you don't relate to another human being in a being situation, on those things, I mean, it was. Uh, and, uh, actually,
0: I thought you would have. Actually, I thought no. I, have. Well,
1: I was. Uh, no, Jim was bright, and he was. Uh, he had opinions that were very relevant. And, uh, Where did you meet? Uh, in Guntwood, Maine, at a marriage equality fundraiser. Right. And
0: what's the name of the shirt I see you wearing? Twice, wheels, wheels and waves. waves. Is that your business? No, it's my friend's. You're, okay. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see if wheels and, and waves, there. everybody.
1: Two Is product they, placements they in they this surf, movie. I think that's fantastic. It's uh, <laughs> a surf... And you wore trip. two
0: different colors. So right. You wore the same shirt 15 seconds ago with she a different color, wheels and waves. Who's ever the beneficiary? Thank you. XL, <laughs> extra large, by yeah. the way. Uh, maybe gray or blue. Um, but you met at a marriage equality yes. event. What year? 05. And did you, were you aware? I mean, obviously you were aware of who he was, but were you someone who was... You weren't political, so this speak. We'll
2: I'm kind of still not. Right. <laughs> I'm just guilty by association. That's
0: like, I know the feeling. I'm married and my wife never watches movies and she never goes to the movies. It's agonizing, actually. It's painful. But you're, well, you're still, still not. Well, i mean, more he, than ever before,
1: but... He knows a lot more about derivatives than the average
0: citizen. Well... Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Now, back to your career, though, I mean, uh, uh, in, in the sense that You know, I'll never forget, I mean, you you, you remind me of people I know, I don't know a lot of people in your line of work, but in my business, there's there's some similarities, and in any line of work, where there's a way you could have played it, there's a way you might have played it, and it would have been a lot easier for you, and you were known as being a very, very direct, I don't want to attach any negatives to it, as very direct, and very honest, and you spoke your mind, and... I mean, the reason I'm here, the main reason I'm here, is because I went to GW and I lived in Washington, and I was going to go to law school, and politics was always important to me. And men and women who represented, who, who saw government as a, as a, as an instrument to do the greatest amount of good for the most number of people, that was what was attractive to me. Senators, whether it was state legislatures or Congress or what have you, and you to me are the ultimate example of a public servant who went there to do the most good for the most people. I've admired you your entire career, your entire career. Um, but did you feel, did you feel that there was a that at one point did you ever sit there and say, God, I'm going to I'm going to try to do it differently. I'm going to try to play this game a little more cleverly and see how you know,
1: it goes. Two reasons. First of all, it's, you know, legislating is a very personal business. I mean, you're working with other human beings. And uh, I would be advised to be different. You heard uh, my friend, Jim Siegel, here, and others advising me not to be as contentious with the voters in, in campaigns. And, uh, you know, it's funny, they would always talk about how bad I was at campaigning. I was always struck with how good I was doing something I really hated and how <laughs> I was surprised I was ever civil in the midst of a, of a tough campaign. But, um, no, I just, the answer is, I don't think anybody is, you can, look, it's, you're, you're a professional, you can take this posture for a limited period of time, but you can't live that way forever. I mean, my, my when I said, when I asked it to give career advice to younger people it is. Try to find something you, you, you like to do, and don't, don't try to spend your life doing something that you really dislike because you think you're supposed to. And my, my metaphor is, you cannot live holding a gun to your own head. I mean, that, that's the problem. If you, and so I just realized, uh, this just isn't going to work unless I can do it. My I remember
0: like in my business that we, we would, I would say to people now, I'd say, be a part of it, and don't always feel that you have to give them your opinion. You know, I would be in a meeting, and the uh, you know I was always very uh, I get along really well with the crew and the cast, and then the producer who could do my career the most good. I mean, the person who could do me the most good in my career, he'd say something like, "I think in this scene you should wear a patch on your eye," and I would burst out laughing in the production meeting, and you could just see my career with that guy was over. I was done. He was never going to hire me again. And one time I went to a party and we were there. And I remember I literally took a deep breath and I said, I'm going to play a little game here. And I walked up to the wives of the four or five most important men at this cocktail party. And I cornered them. And their husbands were there carrying forward. They were these very self important men. And I took the wife aside and with like the woman, like a level of sincerity I don't think I've ever mustered since in my entire life, I took the woman aside and I'd say, Now, what did you want to do with your life and your career? Before you met Bob here, you know, uh, and he he became the head of the studio, and they would go, "Ah, "Well," and they tell me their life story, and I do one, two, and I went home that night, and my agent called me the next day. He said, "What did you do?" And I said, "Why?" He goes, "They all want to offer you every movie they have. Their (laughs) wives loved you. You know what I mean?" And my point is, is there's there's a game you can play to facilitate. But I would say say this. But
1: what happened was you benefited from treating people better than they expected to be treated. And I found that there was this short-term people may resent if you say things, but if you, can, if you can get away with saying a few unconventional and maybe unpopular things for a while, and that becomes your reputation, then it becomes an asset. People do can't tell when someone's being sincere and genuine. And I, I think over time, the, the reputation for honesty was, was beneficial. Do you think that when that report came out, I mean,
0: uh, we, there's a moment where they talk about uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and, and it's interesting, in this day and age, it, it, this has become a lot easier to do, to uh, reveal, I don't want to say expose, but to reveal uh, the, the the credentials of the woman who worked with Forbes and wrote the mm-hmm. book and so forth. But did you feel that when the report came out, because uh, uh, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they, well, let me ask that question, was that very painful for you? And very well, I, yeah, you? I
1: really rejected it. And uh, Bethany McLean, got it right. Part of it is chronological, but I just—I I picked up a copy of Dick Cheney's autobiography the other day, and uh, I, I did what, I gave it what we call the Washington Read. Did your hands Reed. catch fire when you yeah. touched it? You... Well, it was called, I, I gave it a Washington Read, which is that you look in the index for your name. <laughs> um, and as well, I can tell you that virtually every book ever written about American politics mentions Benjamin Franklin, because I always get to him in the index. And, um... <laughs> Wow. But, um, I guess mine would be Malcolm Baldrige. Was, who I'd it 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 it. Not as, mention, yeah, not as up, often there. Yeah, exactly. But what happens is Cheney says, we tried to reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 2003, but Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank killed the bill. Except I wasn't chairman of the committee in 2003. I was a well. A, I let that stand I was in the, the way. Minority. <laughs> I didn't become chairman of 2007, and the first year that I became chairman, as Paulson says in his book, we fixed it. So there were two things about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. First of all, they exaggerated the extent to which it caused the problem. But secondly, I wasn't in charge until 2007, and when I became in charge is when we fixed it. And Bethany McLean gets it right. I just found a great quote from Alan Greenspan in 2007, before the crisis, talking about how good it was to have subprime loans. But even though they were risky, they made people conservative, and that's what we needed for a capitalist society. And when the financial... You go all through the first part of this century, conservatives were all for the subprime loans. What happened was there was the financial crisis, and they needed something to blame other than the irresponsibility of the private sector. And they retroactively came up with it. Just the last point on this. In 2007, when I became the chairman of the committee for the first time, we passed the bill to restrict subprime loans. The Wall Street Journal attacked us. November, 7, 2000, November 6, 2007. You can look it up, the way Casey Stengler would say you will find a Wall Street Journal editorial saying that subprime loans are very good to help poor people become home ownership, and shame on me for trying to stop it. So I was frustrated, and yet it was helpful when people began to see, see what had happened. Um, who was someone who, when you worked there, because I would imagine, uh, and particularly
0: if you're unmarried at that point and don't have children and a family and so forth, to uh, pull on your time? Uh, who were your best friends there? In that who, who were people who you really developed a deep, deep, many, many years there in Washington? Well, who did well, you
1: among my colleagues, I um, took a guy named Mel Watt, who's now become, he was a, a member of Congress from Charlotte, North Carolina, who's now head of the uh, uh, housing, uh, Federal Housing Finance Agency. Ironically, he's the guy who's now running uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He, uh, he played a, uh, he was on the committee that I was on, uh, Maxine Waters, uh, who was referenced there, because, I, because, because my life was so work-related. They were people with whom I shared uh, committee work, Howard Berman from Los Angeles, because we were on the uh, Judiciary Committee together. Uh, actually, one of my closest, two of my closest friends were there before I got there, both retired. Um, Pat Schroeder, Congresswoman Pat Schroeder from Denver, was a wonderful, is a wonderful woman and a yeah. great friend, and Congressman Ron Dellums from, uh, from Berkeley, California. Uh, they, were, they were very close friends uh, early on. Mm-hmm. So what, is, uh, what do you think he's going to wind up, what are, the, what
0: are you, plural, going to wind up doing in, your, in the coming years in your retirement, semi-retirement, his retirement? Whatever retirement from Congress, I should say. What do you think? Whatever is he happiest laying on that chair in that house in May reading the uh, Times? Um, yes. Yeah. yes. I figured. Not happiest, but most comfortable. He strikes me as Both. that type, most comfortable. Yeah. No, no Internet for you. No, 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 not, no, not no, a, no, 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 iPads, a, no tablets, paper copy of the newspaper.
1: I mean, I'm going to get yeah. a Kindle. Actually, uh, Courtney, among yeah. the yeah. friends, are, uh, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, who's uh, our Congresswoman from mm-hmm. Southern Maine, and I've Donald Sutton, have become great friends. And um, uh, I borrowed her Kindle. And I'm now finally, she'll be glad to know, going to get my own Kindle. You're going to get a Kindle? So I, I'm going to get a Kindle so I can read You're the paper. to get a Kindle. I want to read the paper, but.
0: Um, no Starbucks either. Like what? U band, chock full of nuts? Well, Dunk- Starbucks, no,
1: New England, Dunkin' Donuts, it's Dunkin' Donuts. New England. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Well, Cubbies now. I did work on a book, and that's that's finished. Uh, When's it come in, out? A year uh, next March probably. It's Just gone to the editor. What's the book about? Well, it's it's very much similar to the movie in the sense that it starts out with my talking about realizing when I was fourteen that I liked politics and that I was gay and that this wasn't going to work very well and how those two evolved over time. will you know, um, that's basically talking about how, frankly, things got better from the gay standpoint, worse from the government standpoint. Do you think
0: that some of your, your ethic in terms of politics, does it come from your dad or your mom, from your family?
1: Yeah, my parents uh, were very political. They were not, they were political um, in ideas. They didn't get too involved in politics. We grew up across the river there in, uh, in Bayonne, And it was a thoroughly corrupt machine, first under Frank Haig and then by his successors. Uh, So, you know, nice Jewish people didn't get involved in this pretty vicious, corrupt, mafia-dominated, long-term. I mean, on the waterfront is is a fairly accurate uh, portrayal. But we talked a lot about it. And uh, uh, my sister Anne was here and uh, was older than I was interested. And the whole family was was raised, and we used to spend on it. Time, um, they said, once the closest thing we had to a Bible in the house because we were Jewish, but but secular was uh, the New York Post. Back in the days when the New York Post was a newspaper, it's not New York. Oh, let's go easy on the Post now. I, <laughs> whoa, whoa, I, I'm not, they
0: don't go easy on anybody. Uh, we have just made news. There's some good things about the Post. We have just made. There's, um, um cage liner
1: it's going to come to me but go ahead we were, I thought we were going to make some news with you sticking up for the media
0: right, right we gonna make some news um, please um, i can see it now the the line in tomorrow's paper the the, paper. Um, the, the uh, uh no by the way what time do we have We're going, to take the, we're going to take the questions. I, mean, I mentioned that because, I mean, I, I'm assuming, you know, like, like for many people, it does come from within the home. I remember when I was a kid, my father taught uh, American history, economics, government in a high school. And I, you know, I remember when I was very, very young and the civil rights movement was roiling in the 60s, I was 10 years old. The only way to have a relationship with my father was to talk about, uh, about current events with him and to watch the news with him. And he turned to me once when I was 11 or 12, and he said to me, let me ask you this. If you were black, he said, do you think you would be uh, king and you would preach uh, uh, nonviolence? He said, do you think you would be Eldridge Cleaver and you would arm yourself and you would go a different route? I took it, kind of looked off out the window and went. I thought so. You know what I mean? (laughs) He he kind of knew what the answer that was, (laughs) and uh, and 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 that was really my introduction into that kind of thinking when I was very young about the 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 civil rights movement. But um, do you um, do you feel that the uh, the marriage equality laws that have all been uh, uh, just dominoing now around the country uh, is that a tremendous personal satisfaction for you?
1: It is, and listen. The gay thing is interesting because, but Jim wasn't political uh, because he wasn't political. He was kind of living a better-adjusted gay life than I was earlier, because I was you know, still fighting the thing. And so he's been, frankly, a very good influence on me in, in that regard. In he came thing. out
0: of the room much yeah. more easily than you did.
1: Well, yeah, he was sort of, you know with his friends, and and and, uh, and, and it was in this much more. He, he had a unified life, not a dual one. And, and you know, I started out that way. I wasn't fully integrated until we, uh, we got together. But yeah, the marriage equality thing is, is very important. And I, I take some uh, pride in being part of it. And I think, I mean, basically, in 1996, when the issue first broke, when Hawaii was thinking about it, that's when they, the Defense of Marriage Act, that's when the debate came where I said somebody should be in an institution who made that argument. But I, I think I did help formulate the argument, which was, Okay, what is it about it that bothers you? I mean, to try to put people on the defensive. And I think that's ultimately a major way we won because the antis made such ridiculous predictions. They didn't just say this is wrong in itself. They said this will lead to X, Y, and Z. And when it became very clear that it wasn't leading to any of that, I think that was what what helped us win.
0: If you were there now, because I would imagine in your case this is true, If you were there now and you would continue, what issues do you think you'd be focusing on today? Well,
1: from the LGBT issue, there's one left, and that is to pass the law that I made that emotional speech about. It is still legal to fire someone because she's a lesbian in more states than not, and that a national law doing that. And I think, look, I wish this weren't the case. The next time the Democrats have the House, the Senate, the presidency, it'll happen. The Republican Party still has remained somewhat uh, resistant. The other major thing I would be doing today would be crusading to reduce military spending, uh, I would start with getting rid of it because uh, we are wasting an enormous amount of money. I want America to be the strongest nation in the world, but we can be the strongest nation in the world a lot more cheaply. And we have where do we space. waste the money? Um, well, one in uh, uh, the, we still have the full nuclear deterrent that we had at the end of the Cold War, even though Russia is much diminished. And maintaining that is expensive. Yep. we are still we are spending. President, and I generally support the President, but he wants to spend another, I don't know, $10 billion a year indefinitely in Afghanistan. And I don't see that we are able to, to do much good there. Um, we... Yeah, I was going to say, what about bases abroad? And- way too many. I mean, I understand South Korea. And look, you see this with regard to Russia. I think what Russia is doing with Ukraine is awful. But America hasn't got a military response to that. No one is advocating that we could, at the border of Russia... Invade. Um, I'll give you an example of where we overspend. I love to quote the Wall Street Journal. Day after the election of 2012, two Bush people, administration officials, wrote, they were very worried, they said, because now that Obama's won, we're worried about the Air Force. And they said, here's the problem American air power has totally dominated every battlefield since 1953. And no American military personnel have been injured by hostile air power since 1953. And because of this, there are people who don't understand that we need to expand the Air Force. And I was one of them. And, you know, we could substantially reduce the uh, the, the power we got, including overseas spaces. Uh, and uh, I believe, it, it, one, it just, you save money. But two, uh, the alternative is, if we're going to reduce the deficit, and there's a lot of political pressure to do that, either you do that or you make it more expensive for middle-class kids and working-class kids to go to college, or you do not build the highway and transit improvements we need. You do not do environmental cleanup. I mean, it, it, the, the only way to reduce the budget deficit or keep it from getting out of hand in a socially responsible way has to begin with a very substantial reduction in, in, in uh, military spending. And I, we make this mistake in America, I think. We have a wonderful military, and they can do what a military does. They can stop bad things from happening. But they can't make good things happen. They can't go to Iraq and make people get along. They can't create democracy and end corruption in Afghanistan. They can't go into places in Africa and create cohesion where there isn't any. And, and uh, so, as I said, from this, we can protect ourselves and help those people who, who are generally threatened by somebody from the outside uh, a lot cheaper. If we do that, you can, begin, you can make some progress on the deficit without savaging our ability to improve the quality of life at home. What do you think about Keystone? Because I'm a big energy nut. What do you think about Keystone? Uh, I'm I haven't looked at it as, as closely. I'll be honest, I, the one argument I want to think is if we don't allow it to be built, will that energy be reduced anyway? And that, I think, is a valid question. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, um, what, what will happen if, if we say no to building Keystone? Because there is this one problem. Um, I know the Democrats can win presidential elections, frankly, without a lot of white guys voting for us. But I don't think that's socially healthy. And I do think we have to look at some of the environmental issues from the standpoint of, uh, what this does in jobs. And if we're going to take the environmental position, as I more often than not will do, then we're going to have some compensation for people who are going to be hurt by it.
0: Now, when you say some compensation for people who are going to be hurt by that, makes me think of, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into this whole if I were president thing, but uh, one thing I think about in that fantasy is forgiving 50% on the dollar of every student loan I across the country. I'd say everybody who owes a yep. student loan as a, to, to prime
1: right. the economy but, uh, it's uh, going to kill the economy. Uh, that is a good example of what we could do if we weren't staying in Afghanistan for the, right, exactly. and, and Definitely Find the money from somewhere and say to these kids, you don't owe us half the but money. there are two sources where, we, where the government now wastes money. One is in the military far beyond what we need. And it's, not, it's twofold. We do more than we need to. And then because the military knows that they've got an unlimited amount, right. they have no incentive to be efficient. The other thing I would do, somewhat at the federal level, but even more at the state and local level, one of the problems for most states now is the increase in prison costs. Sure. And a large number of those people are in prison because they swallowed something that other people don't think they should have swallowed. And I'm inclined to let them swallow whatever the hell they want. I would advise them that these are not good things would to you do. you clarify
0: that for us, please? <laughs>
1: Drugs, right, marijuana, okay. heroin, cocaine. I mean, I, I don't think people should do it. And I would say this, if a substance being ingested makes you more likely to be a danger to other people than maybe we should try and restrict it. Except the substance that most causes people to be a danger to other people, alcohol, it's too late to do anything about. But I, I, this notion, the damage that is done by people who take heroin and cocaine is the damage that is done because they steal to get it, not the damage that they do as a country. I, I was
0: listening to somebody the other day on low-paid or... Uh Brian Lehrer here in New York, and they were saying how uh, if, 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 if alcohol was invented tomorrow, the, the, the way it's processed now and was served, did you hear that program? And he said if alcohol was introduced tomorrow, he said they would be illegal. They would make it an illegal substance. Um, we're gonna, let, let's take – do we have a mic for the folks out in the house? Do we have someone? Or you, are you going to speak uh, uh, like you're a member of Congress, shall we say? Yes. Um, <clears throat> do we have any questions from the – we're going to take a few questions. We have uh, uh, we have right, right over here on the aisle hello, hello. Right, right over here we have someone uh, oh right God. here we'll get we'll hand you the mic we're going to go hold on we're going to go around the horn that's here that's
2: better okay here we go. Uh, Congressman Frank you are uh, very much a hero
0: to the people in housing and affordable housing and community development
2: are you keeping up any kind of involvement uh, in Massachusetts on this issue that
1: yeah I'm glad you asked that because there's... One of the things about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is with regard, I have actually been more skeptical of getting home ownership for very low income people and instead building very decent rental housing. And that's, uh, I'm actually working on that naturally. There is some legislative effort going on now to replace Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with a new way of trying to allow people to get 30 year fixed rate mortgages. And my major role in that is to insist that a small percentage of the money involved there go to build rental housing for uh, moderate and, and low people, and I am working hard on that. And within the state, yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be addressing the uh, National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials, Massachusetts branch, the people who try to do subsidized and affordable housing. Uh, I do tend to work with them. But I, I think that, yes, it's a good thing to stop people from buying homes that they can't afford, but the other side of that coin has to be building decent rental housing that they can then live in.
0: We had somebody down here. Yeah, right here. We'll come back to you. Right here. Do you have a moment? Come down this way because we're going to get it. Um
2: I I guess my question was pertaining to um, Mr. Frank specifically. Uh, do you feel that at any point the representation of Mr. Baldwin and sort of associating with the two conflates kind of any kind of representation that you may have had to the LGBT community? And Mr. Baldwin, feel free to respond as well.
1: Conflate? What do you mean?
2: That any sort of way in which Mr. Baldwin has been viewed by some um, has created any problems in terms of your association with him?
1: First of all, you know, each of us is perfectly capable of talking for himself. The notion that uh, when you appear in some common forum with someone, you're each adopting the other views Um, no, I don't pay much attention to that. And secondly, I, you know, Mr. Baldwin is perfectly capable of explaining himself but i i don't have any problem with uh, with, with his attitude and if art. i could
0: answer that question in the prism of promoting the film i'll let you know i'll get back to you but we're here to promote the film you know, would really th- really th- think think i would you say, i did yeah, yeah. 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 But, but it's okay <laughs> right here we got the next question
2: hi jane clements fireburn doctor filmmaker um now that healing burns remotely is an ability that we have um, I don't know if you know but Maxine Walters certainly knows about it Um, how can we get this
0: experiment, this global experiment that's been going on, we have now um, 1,050 cases from 52 countries worldwide of instant burn recovery and we're taking care of shingles as well Um, how can we get this out to the whole world, I mean if you haven't got a sticker from me yet please do
2: I guess
1: the answer is for you to go to more places and make your announcements.
0: <laughs> I think what you should really do is go to Kickstarter, raise money, and make a movie of your We're of going your own. To we issue. We oh fantastic. To You're plans. going to okay. catch. Over here.
2: Hi. Um, I'm hearing on the radio that the Democrats are in serious trouble in two thousand sixteen. Are you going to come to the rescue, please? Yeah. Well, actually, I think
1: what you I think you may be hearing. <laughs> the de- Democrats, well, that's right, it depends on what stations and who you're listening um, uh, Okay. 2014 is the danger point. Actually, the general consensus, which I share, is that for 2016, the Democrats are looking reasonably good. One, because uh, I think Hillary Clinton will be a very strong candidate and will win the nomination if she wants it without a lot of trouble. And two, this split within the Republican Party between the Tea Party uh, a fairly extreme group, and more, moder- more mainstream conservatives. Not moderates, only moderates left there. Uh, I don't think they have a plausible scenario to be able to get behind a candidate in 2016. The problem is 2014, partly because of the negative impact from the way the health care bill was uh, implemented at first, although that's, I think, moderating some. But the real problem is in the United States Senate, one-third of the Senate seats are up every two years. And the luck of the draw is that the Senate seats that are up this year happen to be ones where the Republicans are likely to do better than the Democrats. The reverse is true in 2016. Um, but the, the, there is this problem for the off-year election. And yes, I am working with, uh, with with Democrats in terms of campaigning for people and trying to help raise money. Uh, it's 2014. The congressional elections is, is the, uh, the hard one. We're gonna have time for two more
0: uh, here if we can. In in the back there, on the on the aisle. Is that okay?
1: Is that
2: who? I won. Let her go first.
1: Oh, that's Aunt Donna. That's my Aunt Dorothy. Can my Aunt Dorothy (laughs) ask a question? Can we have? Can we give the microphone? Is it Aunt Dorothy? It's my aunt. Believe it or not, I'm Bonnie's ninety-four-year-old aunt. Very, very interesting, and I loved it. I'm curious to know how one of you here who was just walked in to see a movie, how you felt about it. Anybody else? <laughs> my, uh, my Aunt Dot is the surviving member of my parents' generation. She uh, was the wife of my mother's brother, Abe. And she is and very dear to us. She, she would goes. like
0: any of you to just comment at random <laughs> <laughs> about what you thought about the film. Anyone? <laughs> Great. Right. Did you enjoy the film? <clears throat> Aunt Dot, you should go into the polling business. Yes. We can give Nielsen a run for his money. We're gonna, we're, let's time to... We were in the back there, in the cor- way in the far, to the right, please. No, no. Uh-oh. To the right.
2: Uh-oh
0: sorry. <laughs> Great documentary. In terms of 2014, um, Mr. Frank, which um, Democrats do you find can really help with fundraising and really
2: help make the party more unified?
1: Well, I think um, one of the things that's happened is, you know, years ago many of us will remember Southern Democrats who were deeply alienated from the rest. Today, virtually all the Democrats are more liberal than virtually all the Republicans. It's been that split. So I, I cannot think, given your values, if you are genuinely conservative, uh, you, probably, you ought to be for the Republican at every race. And if you are more liberal, uh, more progressive, to help them cover, um, you should be for the Democrat. Uh, Partly because who's going to be controlling, it, particularly the Senate? And um, there are some Senate races where there are serious problems. The Democrats have some problems in North Carolina, Arkansas, uh, Louisiana, uh, maybe a little in Michigan. And... Um, uh, So the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee raises money, and then those individual senators are are the ones that I would try to help. One one question I have before we take our last question. Do do you think that the financial
0: uh, uh, problems that we faced six years ago, do you think that there's a chance that that
1: could happen again? I will take a little self-confidence. I believe that the legislation we have in place (laughs) makes it much less likely thanks, in no small part, to a member of the audience is he, uh, Paul Volcker. People should know that uh, one of the great men of our time. Paul, raise your hand. And uh, uh, he's, I, I believe uh, if you read the, uh, i tell you this, read the financial pages of the New York Times, and you will read this constant, it's not, they're not writing stories about the bill. But in the stories they write about day-to-day, there are, because of this new regulation, they're they're divesting themselves of this. So you don't solve everything forever. uh, And new things, people can come up with new ways to do things. But I believe we have very substantially diminished the likelihood of the kind of irresponsible behavior that happened before. And by the way, it's very simple. We didn't ban the financial community from doing a lot of things. We did ban them from giving mortgages to people who couldn't possibly repay them. What we did essentially was financial engineering in the late, starting in the 90s on into the first part of this century. People found a way to take great risks and evade the responsibility for, for, for the risk if they went bad. They didn't have to put up the money for it and they would pass the losses on to someone else. And I believe what we did in a major way was to reconnect risk taking with the responsibility for the risks. And I think you are, uh, again, much less likely to see a a repeat of that. Ten years from now, 15 years from now, innovation being what it is, there may be some new areas where we have to look at. But even there, we did give the regulators general authority so that uh, if something new comes up, if if the right people are in power, they should be able to deal with it. As I told Barney and Jim backstage,
0: I used to do this radio podcast for NYC, and I wanted to interview Paul Volcker. And the show, the format was we would sit down for an hour. And Mr. Volcker's Mr. office got back to us and said, Mr. Volcker can give you 15 minutes. <laughs> and you realize even your heroes, they're very busy people. They're very busy people and they don't always have time to sit down with you. <clears throat> I'm going to call you. I'll call you. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs>
0: um, let's do one last one right down, right here, this gentleman right there.
2: Um, I have always believed that public service is probably the most noble of causes and most noble of professions one can go into, and I've always thought about doing it myself. The problem is is that I don't have a lot of money, um, especially in terms of the uh, Supreme Court rulings. Do you think that it's going to make it more difficult for people to get into public service in the, in the next two, three cycles or so? Well, it is going
1: to tell you, it is easier if you have the money yourself. For other people, um, it means that you can still get into it, but you're going to have to spend more time than is healthy for our democracy trying to persuade other people to give you the money. And I I just want to be very clear about the deep philosophical objection many of us have to this Supreme Court tendency uh, of the conservatives on the court to take, uh, they've effectively taken all limits off money. We have two systems in this country. We have a, a capitalist system which creates wealth, and in that system, the way it works, the more money you have, the more impact you have. That's the way it's supposed to work. The more money you have, then the more you affect the economic system. We, are, we have a parallel political system, which makes a decision for the society, in which the rule is everybody is equal. And what the United States Supreme Court has done is to tear down any barrier between those two systems so that the inequality principle that legitimately dominates in the free market system now washes out the equality principle. And money is now equally influential, not equally, but it's getting to be as influential in the public sector, in in the decision-making, which is supposed to be one person, one vote. So it is going to make it uh, harder. I do think that is not look one of the most important things that's going to be decided in the 2016 presidential election is whether the person who appoints the Supreme Court justices that come after 2016, the retirements that are very likely to come in the period, say, from 2016 to 2024, who's going to appoint their successors? Uh, When George Bush beat Al Gore, that's when campaign finance reform, unfortunately, was declared unconstitutional because that played out. And uh, depending on who wins in 2016, if somebody wins in 2016 and gets reelected, who does not believe that money should wash out the public sector equality principle, we'll get back to it. I mean, just as people, I mean, people who have studied that issue, which is, uh, you know,
0: like uh, Brennan Center for Justice, uh, Bert Newborn, Josh Rosencrantz, they, they talked about years ago how if we didn't remedy this problem, we would get to the point where the only remedy would be the one that would, was least likely to succeed, which is uh, public financing of campaigns on a national level. I mean, what you want is people to have, you, you don't want people to have ceilings on how much they spend. You want candidates to have a floor of how much they spend. If saturation for a statewide race, if media saturation in a state like New York is 16 or 20 or 25 million dollars, we'll just make sure that that person has 25 million dollars and let the other person raise 50 if they want to, so long as you have a certain floor, you know. And that's something that, as these laws pass, uh, they, that are killing. Uh, restraints on contributions by corporations and so forth. The the remedy, there's still a remedy, and that remedy is public financing of campaigns, but you'll probably never see that in our... We have time for one more quick one. We had a lady here with her hand up. Where was she here? Right here. Stand up, please, and tell us. What is it? This is is like Dot's question. What did you two
1: think of the film? I'll be honest, it's it's, uh, you know, it's your life. There are some things that... uh, I would have done differently I, I, in, in the movie. I appreciate the general You and me both, brother. Sentiment. No, I mean in the movie, not personally. Yeah, in my in movies, my life, too. Yeah. No, I, I, I would have done a lot uh, of it differently. I'm uh, um, I, 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 I very pleased with the general themes, and I think that's important. And I guess I'm, what I'm hoping is that it does two things, which is, um, first of all, give people a sense that, Whether they agree or disagree with elected officials, uh, cynicism is an inappropriate answer most of the time, that we really are serious people, including some of the people I disagree with trying to do the uh, right thing. And then also I think it does help deal with the the prejudice against people who are are gay or uh,
2: or lesbian. I don't understand why movie makers would want to embarrass somebody that went out of their way to uh, let them make a movie about them. That kind of bothered me a little bit. Where? About, about the prostitute stuff. Right. I really think that was irrelevant, and they really didn't need to put that in there. Right, right. I mean, if you like were you, going, this 94-year-old aunt is here. She doesn't need to see that. It was embarrassing. My mom's going to see it and stuff. Right. It's just kind of rude. There's a lot of things
0: I'd like them to leave out of my movie when that comes out. Outside, right? <laughs> well, That's just make rough. sure it's
2: in the contract or whatever well, you sign. You know, it's not always
0: that easy. Um, what are you proudest of? Because he's a great public figure. I don't mean to put you on the spot. What are you proudest of of him? You're his husband. An American hero. Right. One of the greatest congressmen of all time. I want to thank you all for coming and I want to thank our guests. Congressman
2: Barney Frank, Jim Reedy,
0: thank you all for coming.